say what is good. Um, will you stand with me and pray? Is that okay? I believe God wants to speak into our lives this morning and um, let's just ask God to do that. You guys pray. You, you don't need me to lead us. I'll close the time in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that we're here. Thank you that you are true, that you are worthy, that you are righteous. Lord, we come. We ask for sharp minds to understand and soft hearts to receive the truth of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It is my privilege to be here with you and sharing with you. And I'm going to start off with a question. Who remembers their primary school uh, teacher giving you the spelling words or the times tables? And then at the end of it, they'd go around the classroom and after you'd mark it and, they, and you'd all have to yell out how many you got out of 20 or 12 or whatever. Show of hands, who, who did that? Interesting one because... There's a certain amount of um, learning theory around today that says we probably shouldn't do it. It's not very good for kids' self-esteem and all that sort of thing. And, and I think part of the thing of it, part of, not all of it, but part of it, is this Aussie habit, culture, tradition of seeing someone succeeding, going out to the back shed getting out our chainsaws, starting them up. You know, it's you know, this beautiful, tall poppy. It's a nice, simple flower, elegant. We get our chainsaws and chop them down at the ground or under the ground <laughs> for some reason. Has anybody experienced that, seen it, done it maybe? Where we've just seen someone succeeding and gone, oh, well... It must be drug money. That's, that's the grith of tall poppy thing. <laughs> um, or we've gone, oh, well, they're a teacher's kid, of course. They, they, they're just the principal's pet. It's not that they're actually working harder to get smarter, but to, to be gooder. To be gooder. You know, whatever the reason is, for some reason we seem to be good at finding excuses to cut people down. Now, I'm guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of that at times. But I do remember a specific conversation with Pastor Phil Kaiser uh, leading up to the starting of um, Verity Christian College where he warned us about this Aussie habit of cutting down tall poppies and how we actively work against that. But it's not just in a school context because we're, you know, we want to be able to celebrate people's successes and academic achievement and other types of achievement, all that sort of thing. 
my question for us is, why do we, or how do we do that as a church? How do we do that as a brother or sister in Christ? Not as a church organisation, but as like, you know, people who follow Jesus. So, I'm going to share with you a message that in many ways is very similar to one that I shared in July five years ago. Um, but I don't apologise for that uh, because I believe that it is very much a timely thing for us today. As we question and look into um, accountability and the you'll, you'll pick up pretty quickly that the, what got me thinking on this term is uh, there was a government and as well as uh, disability services campaign that, that you might remember where it said, please don't, or don't diss my ability. And so if we come to think about accountability, I'm going to propose to you that it's, it's bringing to account or calling to account, calling out the ability or the God-worked truths and abilities in ourselves and others. So a few questions, well first of all a couple of definitions. Accountable, A, required to explain actions or decisions to someone. We're going to have to give a reason why we did what we did. B, required to be responsible for something. There's a, there's a stewardship in the sense of the, the cricket steward stewards the pitch and gets it ready months in advance, ready for you know the ex's team to go and play against the, the ender team or the Aussies to play against the the international teams. There's this steward that looks after and cares for and prepares a long time in advance. But you and I also have something that we are are responsible for. And I have already proposed to us that it, there is a call of God on our lives that we are to be responsible for. Part of that is also how we call into account that call of God on other people's lives, the people around us. And so, some questions for us to consider. In what ways will we be called to give an account for our actions? How do we help people around us be accountable in life? And I want to start off by considering how Jesus held people to account. John chapter 4, we see a, a well-known story about a woman who was in Samaria, who lived there, and Jesus is travelling through with his disciples and he stops at a well. And at this well... His disciples go off into the village to get food, but there's a woman who comes to the well in the middle of the day, which is a bit strange because carrying water is heavy, right? So why would you go in the heat of the day in the Middle East unless it's to avoid everybody else from the town? And then we also see that she's a woman. Jesus is a man, and they're not related, so they shouldn't be talking. And we also see that she's a Samaritan, and Jesus is a Jew. And the Jews think that the Samaritans are kind of like half-caste Jews, and we really don't like them, and we will do everything that we can to avoid them. 
we see this interaction anyway. And that's a powerful thought. Firstly, I want us to think about what Jesus did not say. He didn't write her off, culturally. A dirty Samaritan. No good can come from them. He didn't judge her. He was a, a good man, a religious teacher, and he knew about the fact that she had had five husbands and was now currently with another guy. He didn't lead out by condemning her for her relationship status. We don't actually see that he condemns her at all for it. His love calls her to something greater, but that's different to condemning her because of it. So how did he respond to her? With care? With time? With understanding? Three kind of big things. Why didn't he look at her disqualifications and problems? Her isolation and her outcastness? Her sin and sexual immorality? He saw her as one created by God, as unique, as an individual, as a worshipper. There's this whole discourse about her as a worshipper of the true God. As someone called and gifted by God. Really? All in a simple conversation about water and living water and something to drink? Because they were at a well and he was thirsty? Yeah, really. Um, John chapter 4, verse uh, 28 to 30. I want to see the gift of God on her life. Then leaving her water jar. So this is right in the midst of one simple short conversation. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Um, and over in verse 38 to 40, 39 to 42 of John chapter 4. Many of the Samaritans of that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And, they, and because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Think of the gravity of that statement. Early on in the gospel, this Samaritan village recognised that Jesus was the saviour of the world while the 
Jewish chief priests and leaders spend the next two and a half, three years questioning everything that he did, looking for evidence, do us, show us a miracle, do us this or that. He, it doesn't tell us anything about miracles in that village. Yet this village, this whole village came to believe. Why? Because Jesus took time to see the gifts of God at work in a lady who their own village had ostracized who the Jewish society said that she's a Samaritan, she can't have anything helpful there, who her personal background and own poor choices should have disqualified her in any sort of um, any sort of leveled or, or, or thoughtful achievement. If we were a boss hiring in that village, she would have been the first one that would have gone in the, uh, not even going to bother reading the rest of the application pile. Because we'd heard about her. Because the whole village had heard about her. He didn't diss her abilities. He was a really powerful evangelist. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a gift of God. And she was effective, heaps more effective than me. And you go, but hang on, but, 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 Jesus didn't care about the but. He called her to something more than where she was at through care, compassion, and love. Accountability is calling out that God works truths and abilities in ourselves and others. Another example of seeing how Jesus held people accountable we find in Matthew 18. And I'm going to read a few, uh, 16, a few short verses there where we meet this guy that um, Ian's already introduced us to, Simon. Shimon Barjona, son of Jonah. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, or disciples, but who do you say that I am? Mark, Matthew 16, 15. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Simon was a name. A name given to him by his family. A name that meant reed-like. You know, somebody who would sway in the wind a little bit. Grass-like. Hinting perhaps at his human weakness. And how easily swayed he was. By the winds of the world, we might dress it up and get all glossy and say he was an options man. Like me, I'm an options man. 
You know, why have one job when you can have five? Makes much more sense. You know, maybe Peter was this. Let's let's go this way, that way. Which which way? Who knows? But then Jesus doesn't give him a name because Peter's not a name. Some of you are called Peter. Or some people you know are called Peter, and it sounds like a lovely name. It was not a name until this time. It was the equivalent of calling him concrete. Because that's what it meant. And it's not a name. It's a a pebble, a stone, a a, a small rock. (laughs) Can you imagine, Ian, if uh, we just say, oh, we we won't call you Ian anymore. I'm going to call you concrete. Oh, hey, concrete, how you doing? How's your day? Not particularly, I don't know why he got this, but um, what was Jesus doing in this? And I would encourage you, by the way, as you're reading through the Gospels, as you're checking it out, notice what he called him. Often it's Peter. Sometimes it's Simon Peter. But then in a particular moment, after Simon the Reed has had three years of Jesus calling him Peter, concrete. They go to the garden. Well, before the garden, Thursday night, the first Easter. You're going to deny even knowing me, Peter, three times. You'll ignore, no, no, never me, not me. Love you, love you. I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'm there with you, you're my mate. Three Two or three hours later, about midnight, a mob comes to arrest Jesus. Now, James, Peter, Jesus' close mate, good friendship, three years of love, forgiveness, turn the other cheek, um, all these different ways of saying, I'm not here, I've come to serve, not to be served. I've come, what's Peter's answer? Ah! A sword that's cut his ears off. Simon, or Peter, put it away. It's not what we're here for. A couple of hours later, I don't know the man, Jesus. Not me. I'm not a Galilean. I, I, I wouldn't follow him. Really? Who do you think I am? And then the rooster crowed. And then a few weeks later, Jesus has appeared to them. He's, uh, he's already shown that he's alive, that he's res- been resurrected from the dead. And yet we have Peter with this great idea of how, we, how will we fulfill what, all these things that God's called us to do? Well, boys, um, I'm going to go fishing. And they all went fishing with him. But Jesus meets him in that as well. Simon, do you love me? Cooks some breakfast. A third time, Simon, do you love me? Not because he was paying him out because he's been all read-like again, but maybe. Maybe he was going, hey, I've called you to greater than this. I've called you concrete for a reason. And 
Very soon after, we see Peter standing up, leading the church, doing wonderful things. Excuse me, it's a bit, a bit warm in here. Peter was truly Jesus' friend. He was, he's mentioned 97 times in the Gospels, more than anybody else other than Jesus. But he was also rebuked more times too. And there we have this interesting thing that accountability isn't always comfortable, not always lovely to experience, but it is always loving in its motivation or its... Um, it's outworking. So accountability is calling out the God work truths and abilities in ourselves and others. It's about helping each other see God's plan over our lives. It's about building our brothers and sisters up to help them realize the call of God on them. The call of God to change, to grow, to, to become more than the failings that they feel and are aware of in and of themselves. It's not about cutting down tall poppies. It's about helping others shine around us so that we can, can reach up into the sky in their wake. Underneath them, perhaps. Okay, who cares? Jesus doesn't. We might need to consider to stop and think. Who in our workplaces have we cut down, belittled, squashed in their successes? Workplaces is one thing. It's kind of a little bit of a distance, even though we spend a fair bit of time there. Who in our family? Same question. Have we cut down, belittled, squashed? that we need to repent to, apologize, repent to God, apologize, and instead find ways of championing them. Some other examples from Scripture. Jonathan and David. I love, I've been going through 1 and 2 Samuel recently, and I love this interaction between the two. And um, celebrating the call on David's life cost Jonathan. Because he's, first of all, he's giving in his sword, his armor, his this and that. Because he goes, well, David's this warrior, this good things are going to happen here. But he also knew that this was the guy that had had that kind of weird religious dude, aka Samuel, walk up to him and dump a whole bunch of oil over his head. Which is like an anointing, like he's going to be a king. But I'm the king's son, so I'm going to be the next king, right? Surely? That's how it works. But they had this friendship and covenant and love between each other that Jonathan and David go, no, I'm going to commit to looking after this man. David, once he becomes king, once Jonathan and, and his father have both died in battle, not at David's hand, because he was very clear that he would not touch the existing king, even though many times he could have, even though 
the existing king was trying to kill him, David restores all of, all of Saul's household and fortune to Jonathan's disabled son. Accountability and, and, and this love and covenant cost both of them. But it was a personal sacrifice, especially for Jonathan. Who do we need, need to get around more? Because their friendship, the best part of it is that they helped each other be a better man. Who do we need to spend time with? Because they help us be a better version of ourselves. They help us, whether we can put a name on it like, oh, they helped me stand up in this call of God on my life, or not. Let's make it simple. Let's make it doable. Who helps you be a better version of yourself? Paul and Timothy. Just, just briefly, 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, we read, um, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure it dwells in you as well. Fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. And some awesome verses after that. But that one verse tells us something. Have you stopped to think that if David, sorry, if Paul knew Eunice and Lois, mum and grandma, in the other order, oh no, he probably also knew five year old that ran around stealing the communion bread at church. It's a little in joke because, or the 17-year-old that went off secretly with his mates and did this or that. Surely Timothy, or Paul, could have called out the stories to belittle, to put down, but he didn't. He went, no, I see the gift of God that's in your life, the faith, and I'm going to fan it. You need to fan it as well. And do you and I need to fan that faith in ourselves and in the people around us too? You know, the time that we know we believe, but we question why we believe and what we believe and when we believe and we go, oh. But we know, but, but we don't know, but because it needs fanning. Paul overlooked a whole bunch of Timothy's misgivings that he knew because he saw him grow up. Who do you, or what, can you overlook in others for the purpose of highlighting the greater good? We have the woman caught in adultery, brought to Jesus. The law says to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? We're ready. We've got our stones. The angry mob is there. What does Jesus do? Bends down and draws in the sand. And they keep pressing him. Jesus, come on. Religious teacher, teach us. Teach us. What do we do? What do we do? Come on, we're ready. Well, whoever of you is without sin, you can throw the first stone. 
Oh. He called them to account because he could see what they were doing and their purpose in what was out. And he called her to account to say, hey, you've been made for more than this. Go and sin no more. He didn't condemn. And most scholars believe that that was Mary Magdalene who in other spots we read had seven demons cast out of her, who was there at the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, who was involved in the early church and did a lot of great good both through Jesus' ministry and after it. And Paul and Onesimus, Philemon chapter 1. Onesimus is this young guy who's caused the church pain and frustration and I, I believe it was money problem, as in stolen stuff that people thought, I don't know all about it and we don't know all about it. But um, Paul sees something of a transformation that others don't see yet. And he takes a risk on him. He says, hey, any debt that he owes you, you can put that on my account. Not knowing exactly how much that might have been, by the way. Because he was calling something greater out. A restoration, a healing. And he took the chance of a personal loss on this young man. Who do we need to take a risk on? Who can you thank because they took a risk on you. Lastly, Paul. In his letters. Who does he write his letters to? He knows what they were like. He knows that those ones in this town were idolaters and adulterers. He knows in this town they were, there was sexual immorality and even within the church there was all sorts of issues there. And, and who does he write his letters to? To the saints. Because he's calling something out. To say, hey, you're made for more. God's got something greater in you. If you want to look up a bad example of accountability, a human example, check out David's wife, humanly questioning him. Why are you out there dancing, parading yourself around naked? What kind of a king are you? She's condemned for that, both by him and by God. He is, she's barren after that. Because she looked with human eyes and human wisdom and stopped and failed to stop and ask God what his handle, what his angle on this experience was. 
Now, sometimes accountability is painful. Not, like I've said before, it's not lovely to experience, but it is loving in its nature. She, even though she was his wife, was not being lovely or loving in that. Parents, teachers, pastors and leaders do have to bring correction, discipline, um, like Jesus calling this weighing reed concrete. But they do it out of love. They do it for restoration and for building up, even if it seems hard at the time. I want to finish with a couple of biblical questions to ask. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat the tree from the eat from the tree? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So we have a question and we have an answer, but we don't see the answer. She knew what God had said. And that should have been the end of the conversation. But sadly it wasn't. And a generation since we've lived with the consequences. We're called to cut off wrong with the truth. She knew the truth but did not cut off that wrong. Has God really said, yes, he has, full stop? What is it God has said? Check it out, find out. If you're not sure, seek wise counsel on it and then fulfill that answer in the circumstance. Ephesians 4, 29 and 32 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The next chapter, next question comes only one chapter later in Genesis 4. Cain and Abel, and that famous question, am I my brother's keeper? The word of God simply says, yes, you are. It is settled and done. Get over it. God has placed us in biological families with responsibilities there. And it is wonderful and challenging. God has also put us in a spiritual family. And if you read my reading of scripture, at least, is that those Spiritual families seem to be far stronger and far greater 
than the biological alone. And yet, we seem to assume that our biology is far more powerful than God's angle on the family of God. Who are we to throw out that great truth? Because I don't think we should. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Hebrews 10.23-25, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together, as in the habit of doing, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I said I had three questions. If accountability is calling out the God-worked truths and abilities in ourselves and others, when should we do this? How often? Once a decade, it'd be nice. Some of us need to stop and go, oh, hang on, uh, there was that thing that happened a year ago and I still haven't gotten around to fixing that. Well, there's a simple answer. Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today. Just do it today. You only have to do it on a day that's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, today is today. And tomorrow is going to be today once we get there. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak. Bring life. Help us in our own accountability to you in our accountability to husbands and wives, to our children and our other family. Lord, help us in our accountability as a church, as a grow group, as a ministry team. Lord, because we want to be like you, we want to grow in you. We want to become the men and women that you've called us to be. We want to understand more about your calling on our lives. We want to grow into it. We want to fulfill it. We want to put our hand to the plough and not look back. Lord, we need you in this. We can't do it alone. We thank you for your placing us in the body, the bride. We ask for wisdom. We ask for opportunity to meet those ones that we've wronged and need to apologise to. As well as those ones that championed us and we didn't get around to thanking in our growth and development. Lord, help us and to help others to walk in the calling, the great privilege that you have on their life.
we ask this in Jesus' mighty name.